Hi there, and welcome back to a new episode of Many Moons Ago. It's a new year, meaning a new term, and that means a new season, and we're so pleased to have you along this journey with us. This week, I wanted to talk about the imperial legacy of Trinity College Dublin. When we think of Trinity's legacies, we tend to think of the Book of Kells, or great literary figures and alumni. So this week, I'm joined by Dr. Kieran O'Neill. Kieran is the Usher Assistant Professor of 19th Century Irish History here in Trinity College and has worked extensively on the role of the Irish in the Empire with his latest book, Ireland, Slavery and the Caribbean, Interdisciplinary Perspectives, co-edited with Finola O'Kane Crimmins, due to be released this year. Kieran also teaches a course in the History Department on Ireland Modernity and Empire, as well as having previously overseen the running of the Public History MPhil. Kieran, thank you so much for joining us today. Delighted to be here, Shane. Thank you. I wanted to start off way back in the 16th century. The College of the Holy and Undivided Trinity of Queen Elizabeth I near Dublin was chartered in 1592 and has over time come to resemble the college we now know today. How did Trinity initially fit into the state of empire? And what were ideas of colonisation and the empire in Ireland like in 1592? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very long and complicated answer, but I'll, I'll try and make it as short as I can. I mean, I think it's helpful to think about what else is happening um, around uh, the empire um, in addition to Trinity being founded. And if I'm thinking, you know, what are the two major acts of Elizabeth I in relation to empire in and around this period? Uh, the first is the patent of exploration that she gives to Humphrey, Humphrey Gilbert, uh, in the late 1780s, uh, which founds a colony in Newfoundland, um, you know, all the way in the other side of the world, about as remote as it gets uh, in, in Atlantic Canada. Um, and that happens in, in the 1580s. Um, and the, the thing that happens, I suppose, after the founding of Trinity, that is, is, is incredibly important in global history terms as well, is the founding of the East India Company in 1600. So sandwiched between uh, these two, you know, globally important sort of uh, expansions east and west is, is the foundation of a, of a university um, right next door uh, in, in Ireland, a, an island which has long been a problem and will continue to be a problem uh, for England, for the crown uh, and so on. And so Trinity's foundation is, is a much more local, a much more local concern. It's not immediately something you think about when you think about the empire or colonization projects as it is it is explicitly that, but it's also sort of a piece of domestic business. It's an attempt by a Protestant um, state to, to civilize, um, you know, according to pretty extreme religious principles um, that the Irish and, and to do it piecemeal. Uh, so in that sense, Trinity is sort of a, is, is, a, is a colonial tool or weapon in its own right, created by uh, an expanding and burgeoning imperial state. Um, I can talk at length, uh, Shane, about maybe the the, the Spanish and the, the English sort of competition for empire at the moment, but I, I don't think that's necessarily on um, on 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 subject for us. Obviously, as a university, Trinity has been at the centre of education in Irish history. We see over time the introduction of teaching in so-called Oriental languages, Indian history and geography, in order to train people for going out to work in the Indian civil service, as well as other forms of colonial administration and policing. 
Jane Olmeyer has written a lot on the holdings of the college library, with diaries and manuscripts accounting for the role of the Irish abroad, and these collections being a direct result of Irish imperial activity. So Kieran, I wanted to ask you then, how has Trinity fed into the education of Irish people in order to send them out into the empire? And how has our library's collection grown as a result of this? Yeah, uh, great questions. Uh, I suppose I'll, I'll begin um, a little bit earlier than your question. So the question you're asking is, is largely around the collections that we hold, what manuscript collections and physical artifact collections that relate to the empire. And much of those are collected from the mid 18th century onwards, right? So the real peak, if you like, of the colonial universities between, broadly speaking, the 1760s uh, and, and the late 19th, early 20th century, when Trinity's academics in particular were uh, out in the empire, using the infrastructure of a developed empire, the second British empire, to collect specimens for what we now recognize as sort of the work of a modern university that is teaching graduates uh, in uh, new disciplines like engineering, uh, old disciplines like medicine, divinity and law and so on. Um, so in, in some respects, it's it's uh, it's a case of us doing what everybody else is doing. You know, you'll find similar similar things happening at Oxford, Cambridge, University of Manchester and so on as they come on stream in the 19th century. Um, but I want to go back a little bit before that, before we get to this question of, of Trinity's role in creating graduates. And that is just think about where Trinity's money comes from. Uh, and that's that's in some respects the, the, the thing that enables all this future development. Uh, and that money comes from confiscated lands. Uh, mostly from Catholic hands uh, through the 17th century. So in actual fact, although our foundation is 1592, college is really a, a really small concern for, for much of the early part of the 17th century. And what happened as we get into the early 18th century is over that period of time, uh, both the, the parliament and uh, various other um, uh, donors, if you like, uh, really start to funnel large amounts of money and estates and property into Trinity in order to, to help it expand and become more important. So I want to say before how Trinity used that money, I, I do want to point out where that money comes from. It comes from land confiscated from the so-called sort of native Irish. Um, so in that sense, Trinity is, is this deeply colonial weapon or tool in its early in its early years. And the funny thing is, when you go back and you read the various histories of Trinity College Dublin, there's lots of histories of Trinity College Dublin. You know, not much is made of that, as in partly because of Trinity's positioning in Ireland as a sort of a an un-Irish institution by popular reputation in some respects. Uh, we tend to skip over in official histories that deeply colonial kind of uh, funding base, if you like. Um, so that's the, fir the first thing I really want to draw your attention to. Um, but you know, what the university morphs into is, I think, what you're asking me, which is a university that is teaching and producing uh, fellows and scholars and graduates for the empire. Um, so I suppose what I would, I would ask you to do there is think about uh, when we begin to teach, you know, what, what now seem to be quite exotic language groups and so on. And Trinity develops a, a, begins to develop a global reputation for that in the 19th century. But actually, you know, there's a bit of evidence in the college archives that that process begins really in the mid to late 18th century, that we begin to teach uh, and, and collect um, manuscripts uh, and linguistic sort of resources uh, from 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 the east. Uh, we have particularly strong collections for India and South Asia. Uh, we also have some collections relating to the Middle East. They, those can be found and consulted in the manuscripts and in the library holdings. Um, and then we also have developments in, in curriculum. Um, so 
I mean, which of those, Shane, do you want to talk about first, I suppose? I suppose we should, we could work on curriculum. Yeah. So, I mean, when does Trinity start teaching how to be a good imperialist or how to be a good colonial uh, figure? And, and that's a, an interesting question. It's actually something that needs to be researched more, uh, partly for the reasons that I, that I indicated earlier, that college histories tend to skip over this sort of stuff likely for obvious PR reasons, I think. Um, as I said, there's some evidence that we're already teaching pretty exotic language groups in in the ninth in the in the late 18th century. And of course, you can say that the whole the whole curriculum of the early university, with its emphasis on the classics, you know, Rome and Greece and so on, uh, that's in some senses already sort of an imperial ideology that's deeply embedded in Western learning, right? So that goes goes right back, uh, and arguably, you know, my colleagues in classics uh, would would wrestle with these issues right to the present day, that these are foundational ideas of Western civilization. And of course, these terms, Western civilization and so on, are deeply contested now and seen as part of a, a longer project of European and, and in an affiliated way, white, uh, whites, white cultural superiority. So uh, that's one strand. In some senses, everything we've taught at Trinity has always been, in some senses, imperial. Uh, but when it becomes explicitly so uh, is, is in the 19th century when um, I suppose graduate avenues like the Indian civil service begin to open up. Uh, so there's a phase in the mid 19th century where Trinity just turns explicitly towards the empire. And in some respects, that's, that's, um, that's the most interesting moment in a way in the modern university, because you begin to see how job opportunities and scale uh, begins to direct the university's own behavior. So, just to explain that, um, before the 1850s, if you wanted a job in the Indian civil service or in the kind of, you know, broader speaking, administrative structure of the empire, you would uh, simply be depending on, on patronage, right? much like in the military, you would be somebody from an elite or you know, certainly upper middle class background in Ireland, and you would depend on somebody well placed in the administration to write a letter of recommendation and, and recommend you to a lucrative post. Um, that begins to change in the mid-19th century, it becomes more meritocratic. And so universities are, uh, as they still are, the, the mechanisms by which young, talented people gain credentials uh, in order to get jobs uh, that are reasonably lucrative. And so in the 1850s, the Indian Civil Service and other opportunities begin to open up. Trinity sees that it can begin to place its own graduates uh, explicitly through competition into those uh, structures. And so uh, it begins to hire professors uh, who are competent in teaching those linguistic skills that are needed and so on. Now, we still do this today. It's partly what annoys me about university rhetoric in the present is that we have to talk about jobs all the time for our students and employability and jobs rankings and so on. In some respects, the mid-19th century is when all that stuff starts. You know, we think of it as very new, but actually, you know, the empire is where growth and expansion and exciting careers are in the 19th century. So it makes perfect sense that a university like Trinity, which sees itself as British, would see itself as part of the empire um, and Irish, also sees itself as Irish, um, uh, would, would want to stock those lucrative opportunities with their graduates. And that's exactly what they do. Just for a reference of scale, Trinity produced 16% of the successful Indian civil service candidates in the years following the introduction of entrance exams. How significant of a number would this have been when taking into account the number of people in the ICS and Ireland's population, and also the numbers coming from the Empire's other major universities, Oxford and Cambridge? 
Yeah, I mean, it's competing with Cambridge and Oxford in the very early stages. So it's placing almost as many, um, which which really is is where Trinity wanted to be at and why it put, invested so much money into it. Partly why this is good for Trinity is it shows that it's, it's an elite institution and that it can compete with the major players, which are Oxford and Cambridge. And to some degree, you know, Trinity's identity is bound up around being an ancient university. This can be said right down to the present in competition with those kind of older universities for prestige and funding and so on. So it needed to be in that um, competition, you know, and it felt it keenly as all provincial um, universities do. Uh, so yeah, it, it's 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 actually on a par with Oxford and Cambridge in some of those early years, and then gradually it recedes in in terms of market share. Uh, but this is also true of, of other Irish institutions. It's not just Trinity that's gearing its its graduates towards the ICS or or, or you know the administration broadly defined. Queen's University um, in Belfast and the Queen's Colleges across you know all three locations are really aggressively uh, teaching and and uh, and producing graduates as well as are all the elite secondary schools. So on a previous piece of research I did, um, I looked at schools like Tongos and tangentially at schools like St. Columbus, it should be the um, Church of Ireland equivalent to Clongos, the most elite secondary schools. And they were really aggressively pursuing those, those imperial opportunities as well and placing their graduates in, in, in those programs. So, I mean, everybody at the top end of Irish society is, is doing it. Um, and Trinity is just one of a whole panoply of, of, of organizations who are enthusiastic about doing so. So what you're beginning to see, I, I hope, in the way that I'm describing to you, is that the Trinity is really just one, it's one plot point in a whole imperial engagement of, of wider Irish society with with the empire, you know, that, that maybe strikes us when we look back as, um, as odd, but, uh, you know, but actually, it's everybody's at it. I suppose is, is what I'm trying to say. Uh, so yeah, to answer your question, it's it, it's over it's overrepresented in those early years of the ICS opening up, and that's partly just because they were so enthusiastically uh, aiming students at it. Brilliant, thank you so much for that. So you were talking about the uptake of certain ideologies during the 19th century. Pseudoscience and ideas of social Darwinism and scientific racism really came to prominence in the 19th century, and Trinity played a role in its dissemination and practice in Ireland through the Dublin Anthropometric Laboratory. So, would you tell us a little bit about how Trinity contributed to these racist ideas of pseudoscience in their experiments both on and off campus? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a kind of a product of the intellectual side of the, of the college in a sense, right? So less thinking about the empire as a source for jobs and more thinking about the uh, the empire also as a, as a playground or laboratory for ideas around racial science and thinking. <clears throat> so Trinity's like um, engagement with this idea probably begins, it begins in the late 18th century. There are flashes of it already, but really the, the sciences of phrenology and craniometry come into vogue in the 1820s, 30s, 40s. And so the, the people who are at the forefront of that in, in Ireland are, are people who have a connection to Trinity. Um, so William Wilde, uh, who's part of whose collection of skulls is still with us in Trinity, people like Samuel Ferguson. There's a whole bunch of people who are interested in um, uh, the measurement of people's skulls. And you, you'll, I mean, I think everybody is kind of vaguely familiar with what that looks like in its earliest phase. Uh, 
craniometry and, and phrenology produce these amazing skull figures where you see people's you know brains divided into different sections and it, I mean it's all nonsense of course we know that now but but at the time it was taken very seriously one of my favorite moments in this early phase of, of racial science in Ireland is when they they dig up poor Jonathan Swift um they dig up his he, he and the, the woman he's buried beside um are, are exhumed in, I think, the mid-1830s, I think it's 1835, when the British Phrenological Society come to Dublin for their conference. Uh, and so at the time, it just so happened that in the cathedral where Swift is buried, there was some construction work ongoing at the time. And so what the British Phrenological Association thought would be totally appropriate to do would be to exhume poor Jonathan Swift, take out his skull and measure it, uh, uh, according to the principles of, of phrenology and craniometry, which were in vogue at the time. Now, amazingly, what they concluded was that Jonathan Swift wasn't a particularly intelligent or, um, or comedic individual, that he hadn't got much capacity for a sense of humour, and that it didn't seem that he was very intelligent according to the measurement of his skulls, which really should have invalidated the entire science uh, on the spot, but didn't. Um, and so by the late... Anyway, uh, that's a, a slight diversion, but it does show you, I suppose, that... The, the ludicrous aspect of racial science. But what, what's happening is that people like William Wilde are collecting huge numbers of skulls, you know, sometimes from around the empire, across a web of contacts that they form through Trinity and out into the British Empire, where lots of Irish people are working, lots of Trinity graduates are working and so on. They're sending back skulls, sending back human specimens, or else collecting themselves when they're on their travels. And this is happening in Ireland and it's happening outside of Ireland. And so you get these kind of assemblages of skulls and body parts, really macabre, um, you know, for a non-medical person, at least like me, uh, just, just, just kind of stocked up in Trinity's anatomy collections over time. And this happens in a couple of different iterations. So, so uh, phrenology and craniometry gradually fall out of fashion in the mid-century. Everybody forgets about measuring skulls for a while. And then it comes really back into vogue again in the 1860s and 70s in France. And you have people like Quetelet and, and, and so on, uh, Broca, doing really elaborate work, trying to connect uh, physiological development to deviance in a way. So they're interested in how criminals might be um, identified just by their skull size and so on. So that's one of the motivation for motivating factors behind the new science of anthropometrics that comes to the fore. Uh, like I said, 1860s, 70s in France, and then 1880s in 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 England through uh, Francis Galton and John Beddoe and people like this who were interested in skull measurement and ethnicity and race. And this is the moment at which race begins to come into the picture a bit more. Uh, it hadn't been a major feature of phrenology and craniometry. It wasn't the main focus in some senses, um, but, but in anthropometrics, it really is. Uh, so... The interesting thing is Trinity is right at the cutting edge of this technology in the late 1880s and 1890s. We have a, a really world-class anthropometric lab in, in the School of Anatomy, uh, overseen by a couple of different scholars, uh, Cunningham, uh, A.C. Haddon, and his research assistant, C.R. Brown and Dixon. This is kind of four or five personalities in Trinity that are operating uh, anthropometric study uh, really from about 1888 to about you know, the, the mid to late 1890s. And uh, there are all sorts of amazing images which are easily found online of this Dublin Anthropometric Lab. They also publish their results and findings. And the interesting thing is it has, a, it has an imperial element, but it also has a domestic element in that uh, it, the Dublin Anthropometric Lab had two main focus for its, its research. They, they did one discrete study on 
um, Trinity College Dublin student, the undergraduate population, they measured those. Uh, and they also measured um, communities up and down the Western seaboard. So in um, places like Iron Islands, um, Minish Boffin, places like this, uh, right along the coastline. So what they were looking for was um, a specific Celtic type that they thought would be pure on the Western seaboard. And I guess they were trying to contrast that with the Trinity undergraduate population, which were going to be less purely Celtic, I think, was the assumption they were making. Um, and anyway, they, their results were really inconclusive because obviously this is junk science now. You know, nobody would stand over it. But um, but at the time, you can see that the connections they're trying to make are between different types of Irish people within a hierarchy of, of race. Um, that's just so interesting. But the science that was feeding into these two research projects was absolutely imperial. So the main PI, if you like, or director of the research is AC Haddon. And he had just come back from Torres Straits Islands in the Pacific, um, where he had uh, undertaken a very similar type of ethnographic research project, which wasn't just about skull measuring, but was a deeper dive into a, into the natives, uh, flora and fauna of a particular location in the Pacific. And he's applying those same techniques in Ireland. So you're seeing this sort of two-way conversation that's happening with the empire through this anthropometric lab. You're seeing how people are, are applying imperial ideas to a domestic Irish population, and you're seeing how Irish scientists are contributing to a global discourse of, of racial science, which again is deeply problematic. I can talk about this at length, Shane. Unfortunately, you're going to have to stop me. But one of the most telling uh, connections between this anthropometric lab um, and the empire is that really a lot of the equipment that they're using in the late 1880s is taken directly from Francis Galton's UCL laboratories. Francis Galton, if you don't know, is the founder of eugenics, uh, which is the discipline that really grows out of anthropometrics. Um, and these labs are so connected in the 1890s that they're sharing equipment and they're sharing ideas and they're in constant dialogue with each other. Galton's direction would go in the explicitly, you know, problematic with eugenics, which eventually, as we know, ends really badly in the mid 20th century um, with uh, devastating consequences for a huge amount of people. But in the 1890s, these are sister projects and, and see themselves as sister projects. And Trinity has, yeah, um, never really dealt with that, I think, as in we've never really, there's a low awareness of uh, our contrib contribution to racial science amongst the undergraduate and faculty, I think, communities. And I just think that's fascinating that it's so successfully buried as a, uh, as a, as a feature of our history. That was really fascinating. Thank you so much for that. I'm just wondering now, how, Kieran does Trinity follow ideas of empire after decolonization movements and following Irish independence when we move from the 19th into the 20th century? Yeah, so the context of Trinity changes radically, obviously, in 1922, when the culture it's founded to help propagate, you know, is, is taken away from from. Uh, from its control, from its sort of uh, surroundings. So, so what I'm trying to say there is that Trinity is designed as part of the colonial project from a British perspective. That's its purpose. And it's also it's how its identity grows in the 19th century. Um, but in the 20th century, it is now a university with an antagonistic or anachronistic culture within the, you know, a free state and then Republic of Ireland. So Trinity itself has to do a lot of work um, to try and reposition itself as of fundamental importance to Ireland. 
And Ireland is, at least at a surface level, decolonizing uh, from, you know, you could even say from the 1890s um, uh, in terms of cultural nationalism. But, but you know, I mean, it, it very forcefully is decolonized from the, from the early 1920s. So Trinity does reposition itself. Uh, it becomes more nationally focused, more nationally minded. Now, the extent to which it's successful in that is dependent ex exactly on what you think of Trinity uh, as a modern institution and as a, an employee. I have, I have mixed feelings about that, uh, the extent to which it's successful in, in doing so. But, you know, I think it's easy to say everything changes for Trinity in the 20s. The type of student that come in at Trinity changes to some degree as well over time, and it, it gradually becomes a more national and to some degree even nationalist in some ways institution which is a really interesting transformation in its history. So how does that change its, its relationship to empire? Well, I mean, in some degree, the first 20 years, not much changes at all because Ireland's still a member of the Commonwealth. Ireland's still in the empire uh, to an extent that I think, you know, people outside of um, courses that look at Ireland empire don't, don't always appreciate. We didn't really leave the architecture of empire until the late 1940s. Um, so nothing changes radically straight away, but over time you begin to see that uh, the student body and the faculty become uh, much more circumspect and um, anti-empire. Uh, and, and also the, the, the composition of the staff changes to a great degree. So, so you begin to see Trinity figures become involved in the decolonization projects of other countries in the empire. So as we all know, um, there's a long relationship between Ireland and India. Uh, and, you know, as India decolonizes through the 20s, 30s, and 40s until it gradually um, separates under Mountbatten. You know, Trinity graduates are centrally involved in that process uh, because Trinity has a long relationship in, in India, uh, one that continues right down to the present day, both in missionary context and in terms of people who've been out there in governance structures and so on. That's one relationship that continues. Um, there's also a relationship with Nigeria and some of the West African states as they decolonize uh, in terms of the links between higher education institutions and our own. Uh, there are links um, later in the 20th century with the anti-apartheid movement. We have uh, a very prominent law scholar uh, who's centrally involved in that and helps to uh, really give impetus and energy to, to, to anti-apartheid in the, in the late 20th century. So there are all these different relationships that are to some degree got to do with decolonizing but they're also happening parallel to us sending out doctors to Kenya and in parts of India and so on. So even while you have these decolonizing impulses in the institution, you also have the old style colonial uh, patterns uh, still in motion. So, you know, it's very easy to go back and read something like Patrick Heffernan's uh, 1950s memoir of being a doctor in, in Africa and so on, realize that, you know, Trinity is still producing both types. We're producing post-colonialists in some senses, but also colonials. And, and that's not a bad metaphor for the position of Ireland in, in the first 30 or 40 years of independence, I think. Uh, it's a sort of an unsure relationship with empire where we're, we're still deeply embedded in the British empire, uh, but we're also, you know, uncomfortably trying to extricate ourselves from it and certainly trying to extricate ourselves from any sort of blame uh, that will be taken for its iniquities. Uh, and. I think that partly explains a lot of the historical amnesia um, about Ireland's relationship to empire in a more general sense. But that's my personal point of view. Uh, you know, I'm not sure. I'm sure you can argue against it. 
Ireland and its role in the empire is something that we don't really tend to address as a nation, and this is part of a larger and more general historical amnesia. However, it has started to find its way into the discourse recently. Back in January, we saw an article from the University Times here in Trinity about the famed alumnus and the namesake of the Berkeley Library, George Berkeley's involvement in the slave trade. The article wrote that the proposition that institutions and revered historical figures benefited from British colonialism appears antithetical to our national identity. But in the process of examining the discrimination embedded in our society, we cannot overlook those aspects of our history that don't affirm our sense of national identity, and especially those that threaten it. With the recent movement to remove and destroy memorials of racism and slavery as part of Black Lives Matter, it's clearly something that's on the front of people's minds at the moment. So Kieran, I'm wondering, do you feel like Berkeley and other imperial personalities' involvement within the empire complicates our national identity? Does this make it impossible to extricate us from imperial activity? Or is it something that we're more than willing to forget? Yeah, Berkeley causes all sorts of questions. I think it's really interesting. So if, if I think about the two big 18th century giants of um, of Trinity's history, uh, you could argue for three or four, but you know, Burke and Berkeley are the two that most often, I think, are, pop up in, 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 in global contexts, you know, Burke is a sort of, you know, a, a critic of empire. He's a, a huge intellectual force, parliamentarian statesman. Um, and, you know, we're happy enough to talk about him in Trinity context because most of his message is still acceptable to modern years. You know, he's critical of the empire in India. He's critical of any abuse of power or corruption and so on. He's an advocate for the downtrodden and so on. Um, so, but I would say there's, you know, for every Burke, there's a Berkeley, forever Berkeley, there's a, a Burke, you know, so Berkeley is, of course, our stellar global, globally recognized philosopher, uh, former librarian of Trinity, um, you know, uh, just a, a, a philosopher on, on, the, on a scale of importance that where he's still taught uh, as part of the whole Western canon almost everywhere. Um, but Berkeley owned slaves, right? so uh, four that we know of. Uh, and he sold them, bought them and sold them, renamed them um, according to his own wishes, uh, removed their names, um, replaced them with sort of uh, anglicized Christian names and sold them eventually, you know, uh, although it's not entirely clear what happened to them afterwards, but it looks like they were part of a donation to, to Yale. So Berkeley's a, an interesting figure in that he has a Trinity connection. We're, we're the ones who produce him, but of course he goes on to, to um, to, to greater importance to some degree in, in an American context where he gives his name to UC Berkeley, the, the famous uh, West Coast liberal university and, and, and also has a connection to Yale. So he's a sort of a, an issue for several big institutions and, and we're maybe the, the institution that's the latest, even though we created uh, Berkeley and are happy to trade in his name, we're the ones who are latest to reconcile, if you like, as a college community with his importance or the difficulties um, surrounding uh, his biography, if you like. So what does it boil down to? It boils down to the fact that we have a, a signature college building named after Berkeley, and that building was only named after Berkeley in the 1960s. We have no endowment related to Berkeley in college. He never gave us any big block of money. Um, so we don't have to think about donor intention. In actual fact, what happened was that in the 1960s, a committee of Trinity people, uh, professors, 
decided that Berkeley was someone that we should name a, a, a library after. And I think that the issue that we have as a college community in 2021, when we're speaking, is that we should probably have a conversation uh, about whether we those values still reflect what we want Trinity to be seen as externally. In the 1960s, it's still surprising to me that college decided to name that library after Berkeley, given the, the global context of civil rights, Martin Luther King, uh, you know, where post-colonial phase is quite developed by the mid-1960s everywhere. So it's surprising, it's really surprising to me that college uh, decided to go with Berkeley when there was no money attached to that. Um, and what I, I think will happen is that um, because Berkeley is in some respects the biggest um, building in Dublin that connects directly to, to slavery, I think it's an issue that's not going to go away until we until we have a critical conversation around it in college. Um, I'm excited to do that. I think I'll be really interested to see what the the arguments for and against are in terms of renaming the Berkeley Library. But I think the conversation has to happen. I think it's crucially important that it happens. Uh, we simply can't bury our head in the sand and pretend that the context hasn't changed uh, in the 50 years, uh, 60 years. Um, uh, since since the college was named, uh, well, since the building was named. Thank you very much for that. Now, Kieran, just to wrap up on our discussion, I wanted to talk about the question of elitism in third level education. With access to education being incredibly limited, much of the conversation debate that we have can remain in Trinity. Change obviously needs to start somewhere, but when we're addressing Trinity's imperial past, how can we best take this? out into the public and Irish society in general, if we want to reconcile the wrongs in our history to correctly address Ireland's involvement in a side of history that we as a nation would sooner forget. Yeah, so I, as I say, I think we're really comfortably behind lots of other institutions in doing this. So if I look across the water and look at universities like Glasgow and Cambridge, they've, they've already set up initiatives that have a kind of a public and internal function where They've run a series of events around, you know, for example, Glasgow's connection to the slave trade, which is, which is much deeper um, than Trinity's in terms of the endowments and the money that came in. Um, Cambridge is the exact same. They're, they're in the middle of an initiative like that. So I, I think something that comes from the centre of college will be really important. I think we'll have to do something um, first to reconcile what the college itself thinks. You know, so I think there's an internal uh, conversation that has to happen where we talk to our undergraduates, to our staff, and to anybody else that, that that Trinity represents about you know some of these bigger issues. But I also agree with the sort of tenor of your conversation, which is to say it's not enough just for that to be internal conversation. You know, Trinity is a national institution. Uh, I'm paid by the government, by the taxpayer. You know, uh, we're all, we're part of this country, and what happens here reflects it in some degree. So we are a sort of a national institution as well as a university. Um, and, and I think that's really important. And, and I wonder about the mechanisms by which we should do that. But partly because I know there's a, a you know there's a sort of a level of cultural antipathy towards Trinity, and particularly towards its its colonial past, as in it is seen historically as uh, a Protestant um, uh, and somehow culturally British institution. Now, I'm not saying that's correct. Uh, it, I'm just saying that's the that's a level of popular perception that's out there, especially from people who don't go to Trinity. Sometimes people who do, fair enough. Um, 
but yeah, I, I think that the issue for us is to try and to try and find a mechanism to include as many people as want to, to be included in that conversation. And that's every stakeholder, as, as we say, uh, whether it's our neighbours uh, down in Pier Street, whether it's the, the government that joins our site and so on, everybody should be included that wants to be. And the way to do that will be to run public events that are interrogated, not just about display. I mean, one of the things I've learned from teaching public history over the years is that the last thing the public wants is for you to broadcast whatever you think at them. You know, if you're going to invite a, a critical conversation that's that's wider than the institution, then people need to be able to input um, and also, uh, in some respects, really critique what you're doing. Uh, so I'm excited about that too. I think if we if we do launch an initiative that uh, that addresses these concerns, then it should absolutely include the wider public in it, to the extent the wider public wants to be involved. Kieran, thank you so much for joining me on this episode today. It's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you about ideas surrounding Trinity's colonial and imperial history. And they're generally part of a narrative that is neglected in favour of talking about Trinity's greats and famous alumni that we've produced in a 429-year history. And it just shows that there is a lot more work that we have to do as both a college and as Irish people and broader society to reconcile this and to accept that there are parts of our history that are unfavourable and don't always necessarily portray us in the great light. Um, we're not always the victims that we think that we are. And I mean, there's not a problem with that. It's part of accepting it and recognising it. And I think that, you know, taking Trinity, for an instance, and learning how to cope with that in the beginning is a very healthy and necessary process. And hopefully this episode has been useful to any of our listeners to kind of introduce them to ideas that they might never have heard before. So thank you very much for that. It's been really enlightening and it's been a fantastic conversation. And to all of our listeners, thank you very much for joining us on this episode. We hope you enjoyed it and stay tuned for a new episode of Many Moons Ago in two weeks time. And in the meantime, you can keep an eye out on our social media for all of the events that we will be posting in the meantime. And until then, stay safe, look after yourself, and we shall catch you next time. Thank you so much for tuning in. Bye.